we've been in the middle of a Genesis series, and today is going to be the conclusion of that series. And uh, thank you for those of you who, who have joined us. If you've missed any of those talks, they are all online. Excuse me, they will all be online. I recognize that I'm about two weeks behind on getting the messages up for those of you who missed last week and the week before, but I will get to those as soon as I can, and then all of the talks will be up, and you can catch up, and you can use them. And we've actually heard that some people, uh, some groups have used them for small groups and Bible studies, and we're just uh, thrilled and delighted for that. So actually, if you're listening by MP3 right now and using that, we're glad that you are uh, joining us and a part of uh, that, and we're tremendously blessed God for uh, what it is that these talks have been doing in your community. So today, we're going to share a message entitled, It's All Good. Everybody say, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. So we're coming to the end of the Genesis series, chapter 48 through 50. I'm going to do an introduction. Daniel's going to share a little bit, and then I'll bring us to the close. How many of you recognize this? Say it. For, okay, immediately. Now, I lo- this is a very iconic movie, obviously, for many, many reasons, and it is something that I'm reminded of every time I think about the message that I'd like to share uh, a little bit of the ending and the closing of Genesis. Why? The opening scene of Forrest Gump starts with this. It tracks through the epic journey of a feather. You know, it's very dramatic, and it's a beautiful song, actually. I really like the music. And it starts with this opening scene. Now, for those of you who've seen the movie, how does the movie end? Do you remember how it ends? It it ends with the feather, instead of landing on the ground, now taking off from the ground, and begins to float off into Never Never Land or into all sorts of different places. And what the writers of this movie have done in this script is something that literary geniuses have been doing for a long, long time. What that is, is essentially setting up for you, the audience, the people that are trying to engage with this story, something at the beginning, but then something at the end that encapsulates the entirety of the movie. Now, while sharing this idea with somebody before, they were mentioning, isn't it also fascinating how the idea of a bird even emerges into the movie. Remember that scene where Jenny is in the field and and she is praying, dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away. And so the feather becomes this image, this picture of an idea, a concept, a movement throughout this movie that the writers of the movie, the writers of this story, want you to engage with. Now, all throughout the movie, there's going to be ups and downs, there's going to be twists and turns, there's going to be dramatic events, there's going to be good things and bad things that happen, Uh, there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows. There's all sorts of that stuff that's going on in the movie. But I think it's really brilliant why the writers of this movie have done this, because what they're doing by setting a feather in the beginning and a feather at the end is they are letting you know there is something to all of the the events in the middle that is symbolized by this feather. Uh, Just for fun, what do you think the feather or this idea represents? I just kind of like to hear from you, anybody. What's the thing that comes up throughout the movie that this feather is symbolic of? Ah, fleeting moments, the fleetingness of the situation that things come, things go. What else? The Holy Spirit, perhaps? What else? Forest <laughs> represents forest. He's a feather. In what way? The feather is 
nice. Okay, that's beautiful. Well done. You, you should be a scriptwriter, Nick. Good job. That's very nice. <laughs> now, this idea, like I said, is actually very ancient. And for those of you who have studied English or have even taken some biblical literature courses, this is an idea called inclusio. Now, that's the Latin word for it. Inclusio. Inclusio is known as a, a way of bracketing or putting together an entire script of story with Images, words, symbols that are meant to describe or frame the entirety of the story. Uh, some people call it the envelope structure. My favorite technical term for this idea in literature is called sandwiching. And for those of you who like that sandwich, maybe this is a better sandwich for you. And if you really like sandwiching, then here's the 20 by 20 from in and out that you guys can really sink your teeth into. This is an idea called sandwiching, bracketing. It's an <laughs> envelope structure. It puts together the entire story by something at the beginning and something at the end that's the same thing. Now, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it starts actually off with the phraseology, law and prophets. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And then in chapter 7, it ends with the exact same phraseology, providing an inclusio, providing a sandwiching, providing an a bracketing. They want you to know, the writer wants you to know, the author wants you to know that what is happening with all of the dictates, with all the laws, all the commandments, all the teachings is within and is the heart of the law and the prophets. Uh, there's another way in which to do this. The Gospel of Luke, if you remember the story, begins with Zechariah the priest. But because of his unfaithfulness, and we can get into that story later, he is unable to bless. He's unable to speak. He loses his ability to speak. So there's the priestly blessing that is lost at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. But then at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus raises his hands like a priest and blesses the people. Inclusio, bracketing, sandwiching, priestly blessing. And then the Gospel of John has an inclusio. If you remember, and for those of you who are familiar with this passage, it starts with the phraseology, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, which is reminiscent of the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 1. And then at the very end of the story, it ends with Mary mistaking Jesus for the gardener in the garden, which is also reminiscent of Genesis. So they're doing these inclusios. These, and it's, it's a beautiful and brilliant literary device to kind of get you as the audience to wake up, pay attention. There's something here that I want you to see. And perhaps one of the greatest inclusios that we have, we've talked about before that is appropriate to talk about here is the Genesis to Revelation. In the beginning at the Genesis story, it starts with the central figure of the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And the tree of life represents everything that God wants this story to be. And then at the very end in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you start to see that new creation come about once again. And in, in splitting the river was what? The tree of life. And so the writers are setting this up to say, hey, pay attention. Everything that's in between these things, I want you to see as somehow representative, symbolic of this imagery, this idea, this concept. Are you with me? Forrest Gump, Feather, Inclusio, Sandwiching, 20 by 20, okay? We're all, we're all on, on board. So when we get to the end of Genesis, which we are now, chapter 50, 
verses 19 through 21. Read along with me. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That phrase there, God intended it for good. What does that sound like to you? And God saw the light and he declared that it was good. And God saw the expanse and he saw that it was good. And God saw the animals that he had created and he said it was good. And then God looked over all of creation and he said, it is very good. Tov me'od. Tov me'od. The very beginning of the story begins with good, good, good. Ten times. And on the tenth time, God says it's very good. Ten is always, always symbolic of completeness because it's all of your ten digits there. So when Genesis 50 and Joseph ends with this phraseology, it is good. It is a way of encapsulating the whole of the story. This is the Hebrew word, good, tov. And so the writer is saying, this entire story, everything that we've been reading since the very beginning is ultimately good. Now, there are twists and turns and dramatic events and things that happen that don't seem to be very good. We would all agree with that, hopefully. There are stories that we covered <laughs> that were like, that ain't good. That's definitely got not good. Remember that teaching that we did where we, we were talking about if somebody went through this, somebody would need therapy because this is really not good. But the reason why this is here is not to tell you that everything within those stories are good. It's to give you a framework and a reference for everything that is in there. It's to help you understand the whole nature of the story by starting with what is good and ending with good. It's to help encapsulate that. And to illustrate that a little bit, Danielle's going to share from chapter 48. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, we have a whole bunch for you, and we're going to start to read along. Um, this portion of the text will be on the screen. You can open up your phones, and I won't think you're texting about how awesome the sermon is. It's okay. Um, and then um, at the end, we're actually going to look at the blessings of the tribes. So we're going to take a look at how these two portions coming up, the blessing of Joseph's children and then the blessing of the tribes, are, are including this idea. This includes you, sort of bringing everything back together for us at the end. So look, at, look with me at um, chapter 48, and we're going to start there in verse 1. Now, the translation I have up on the screen is from a translation by Robert Alter, and this is from the five books of Moses. Sometime afterward, Joseph was told, your father is ill. Uh, this is actually the first mention in the Bible of an illness. Um, it doesn't happen prior to this. Um, so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And he blessed me and said, by the way, Luz is Bethel. So if you kind of don't remember that part, we kind of talk about it. Um, he blessed me and said, I will make you fertile and numerous, making you a community of peoples. And I will assign this land to your offspring as an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt shall be mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be no less than Reuben and Simeon. And let's just stop there for a second. Notice that Jacob has switched the order already of the kids. 
So Joseph has had two sons, and they are Manasseh, the firstborn, and Ephraim, the secondborn. But as Jacob slash Israel starts to speak about this, he says, bring your two sons who were born to the land of Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they shall be no mine, no less than Reuben and Simeon. Reuben and Simeon are Jacob, Israel's firstborn. So what Jacob's doing right now is he's saying to Joseph, your two sons shall be as if they are my two sons and not just that, my two firstborn, my first and my secondborn. This is a big deal. So next slide. But progeny, Jacob says to Joseph, but progeny born to you after then shall be yours and they shall be recorded instead of their brothers as their inheritance. When I was returning from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow while I was journeying in the land of Canaan, when still some distance short of Ephrath, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrath, now Bethlehem. Now, sorry, we'll go back really quick. When Jacob says this, he's, he's dying, he's very ill, and he stops to say, remember my wife, Rachel, but not just my wife, Joseph, remember your mother, Rachel. And she died before she could have any more children. And remember that Rachel was his favorite. And in the Hebrew here, when it says, she died to my sorrow, it's actually like, and the grief was upon me. Like it's this thing that, that falls upon him. It's this burden upon him and he can't get out from under it. So noticing Joseph's son, Israel asked, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons who God has given me here. Bring them to me, he said, that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were dim with age, and he could not see. Hold up. When was the last time somebody, one of the patriarchs, their eyes were dim because of blindness, and they were going to bless? Jacob himself, his father Isaac was dim. His eyes were, yes, and... Jacob goes in as the secondborn, pretending to be the firstborn Esau. And we talked about that in our Genesis series. So again, if, if you're just here for today, that's okay. You can go back and, and grab, you know, all the 50 chapters we've been going through this whole time. Um, okay, <clears throat> so Joseph brings them close to him. He kisses them and embraces them. Remember that Jacob went and kissed his father, Isaac, and said, I am Esau, and was embraced by him. I mean, it's very, this concept again of inclusio, of stories coming back. And now Jacob, who knows how to deceive a father that's blind, is himself blind, and two sons are coming forward for the blessing. And Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to see you again. And here God has let me see your children as well. And Joseph then removed them from his knees and bowed low with his face to the ground. Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim, his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right, and brought them close to him. It's actually the only story we have in the Bible of a grandfather blessing grandchildren. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head as though he was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head, thus crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed them and said, The God in whose presence my fathers walked, Abraham and Isaac, the God who has looked after me all of my life till this day, the messenger rescuing me from all evil, may he bless the lads. Let my name be called in them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them team multitudinous in the midst of the earth. 
back to Genesis 1 and 2, this multitude be fruitful and multiply. Let all of this offspring, this blessing, and the blessing that God gave to Abraham and the blessing to Isaac, all of this is coming back in this moment. And Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head and was wrong in his eyes. And so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. And his father refused. And he said, I know, my son, I know. He too shall become a people and he too shall be great. But his younger brother shall be greater than he and his seed shall be a fullness of of nations. Do you remember when Jacob was the younger and he went to get the blessing and he pulled that blessing away from Esau the firstborn? It's all coming back. And you have to wonder in this moment when when Joseph says, hey, 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 this is not right. Dad, you got it wrong. If Joseph's not sitting there going, can we stop this pattern? Because This has caused a lot of pain in our family. As a result of your choice to always choose younger over older, which is completely anti-culture for the Bible and for today, that there's something about, you know, the firstborn getting all of the inheritance and all of this, that if you hadn't done this, Dad, you and Uncle Esau might still be friends. You know, there was a lot of pain there. You had to run. Hey, by the way, if you'd picked Leah instead of Rachel who was the firstborn, maybe we wouldn't have had so much pain. And by the way, I'm Joseph, and I'm not your firstborn. But you made me your favorite, and it caused a lot of pain in the family. This isn't right. Put it back the other way. But Jacob, Israel, he is saying, nope. I know, I know. He'll be blessed too. But it's the younger one that his seed shall be the fullness of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you shall Israel bless, saying, May God set you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And he set before Ephraim and Manasseh. Now this blessing is still said today in many Jewish homes around the world. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is it that Jacob, Israel, does this? Why does he do that? Well, let's remember for a moment Joseph's naming of his sons. If you'll go back with me again to chapter 41, it says, Before the years of famine came, Joseph became the father of two sons. Now, this is while he's in Egypt. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget completely my hardship and my parental home. That's the name of his, the meaning of his name. God has made me forget completely my hardship and my parental home. And the second he named Ephraim, meaning God has made me fertile in the land of my affliction. So Manasseh means he who causes to forget. But Ephraim means fertile land. So Jacob gets it right. He blesses the right son. He knows the meaning of the name. He understands what was, in Jacob, what was in Joseph's heart. He understands what was in Joseph's heart when Joseph named that boy. He knew that Joseph was trying to forget. 
not just the land that he came from, not just the pain, but was even forgetting all of the promises, all of where he was supposed to go back to, and all of that his, all that his dad had told him he would have, and all the promises of God from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob sits in this spot, and he's like, we need to do this. And he switches his hands. Now, this is going to be really interesting because now when we get to the blessings of the tribes, something fascinating is going to happen. And if you'll open up with Genesis 49 with me, uh, we can read together. So this has just happened. Joseph's two sons have been given a blessing equal to Jacob's, Israel's own 12 sons. And, And Jacob has said, Reuben and Simeon, Ephraim and Manasseh are coming in instead. Jacob called for his sons and said, gather round so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Now, we talk about this as the blessings of the 12 tribes. Now, let's listen to see what blessings you hear. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, my vigor, my manhood. Excelling in honor, in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Now, blessing? Not so much. And in the Hebrew here, in fact, we're reading one translation that was just cracking me up earlier. You mounted your father's bed. And then it says he defiled it. And then the Hebrew there is a variant where it's either he turns to the other 11 sons as he's giving Reuben this blessing. And he says, he mounted it. It's not you, you. It's, it's like, and he, did you, do you remember the story? This is why he's out. Because he tried to usurp me. He tried to take my place when he did that. This is not okay. And this is fascinating because in the Bible, what we've already seen thus far through the whole of Genesis is that God desperately and deeply cares about how we behave. He's not as interested in your lineage or your credentials or your many degrees or what position you hold. He wants to know how you live. And if you can't live up to God's standard, there will be a consequence. And Reuben, who was firstborn, loses his place. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen so they pleased, as they pleased. Cursed by be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Now, you have to think at this point, the other ten brothers, nine brothers are like, I'm good, right? Thanks, Dad. No need to bless me today. I've got all I need. I'm okay. And then the next line is Judah. And you know, at this point, Judah's like backing out. He's like, good, Dad. I'm good. And there's even like this in the Hebrew. It's like, you, hey, Judah. And then something happens. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub. Judah, you, Judah, don't go. I've got something for you. Remember, Judah says, let's not, let's not kill our brother. And even at some point during the Joseph story, seems to have taken a turn where he's like, listen, take me. I'll, I'll lead now. 
I'll finally leave now. Recognizes that Tamar is the more righteous. Judah had shifts, had changes. Something had happened for him. And Judah gets a whole beautiful poem. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Judah gets a blessing. We would all go, oh, wait, don't leave, everybody. There's a, it could be, it's, it's hit or miss, right? We got a little bit of roulette going on with dad, but there might be something good. And Judah gets this whole big blessing. Why? Because David will come from the house of Judah. And Judah, when they, Israel enters the land, Judah takes the heartland. And in that place, guess what? Vines and branches and wine and fruit and all of the things that Jacob, Israel, is prophesying here. Judah gets a blessing, perhaps because of his changes, perhaps because of how he lived. Zebulun, one line. You'll live by the seashore. He's a sailor. Issachar, you're a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. And you figure, like, there's, like, question mark above his head. Like, okay, I'm a raw-boned donkey. Thanks. Got that? Um, And so that happened. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. He will be like a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. This is interesting because Dan, though the name means judge or judgment, it might be Dan, Israel will judge that you're still part of them because you will be really disobedient. And Dan, when they go into the land, Dan's not going to be able to take and hold that land. They're going to have to go to the north, and they're going to be part of some significant apostasy against God. I look for your deliverance. Sorry, verse 19. God will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. And right in this point, we're hearing Genesis 3. Remember that the snake has done terrible things in the garden, but the curse upon the snake is that the offspring of the woman will crush the heel. And so we have a little bit of that here. Asher's food will be rich, Naphtali, and now here's the next big poem, Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall with bitterness, archers attacked him and they shot at him with hostility. Who would that be? Perhaps his brothers. Yeah. But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the mighty, the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below. Sounds so much like Genesis. Blessings of the breast and the womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of age old hills. Let all these rest upon the head of Joseph. On the brow of the prince among his brothers. And then Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, which is really fascinating when you know what the tribal allotment Benjamin gets. Do you hear how Jacob's, uh, Joseph's dreams have come true? 
His father is blessing him. His brothers have bowed down. All of this in the blessings themselves of the tribal blessings and how Joseph's sons come on in and get that allotment of first and second born, everything has sort of turned out for Joseph. Not so much the others. Yeah? So part of the lesson in that is that even though, and you can hear it, the ups and downs, the twists and the turns, the good blessings, the not-so-great blessings, the things that worked out great, the things that didn't work out great, all of that is within this context of Joseph getting this blessing. And at the very end, in chapter 50, he says, all of this has turned out for good. So, he ends the story, this epic journey that we've been on in Genesis, by saying it's good. I'd like to give you a practical application for this. Even in the midst of the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns and the dra- dramatic events that we have gone through in this Genesis series, that to me is parallel probably with a lot of the things that you and I experience. In fact, I would imagine that if we were to poll you, you would say, my life is actually full of a lot of dramatic twists and turns and ups and downs and things that I expect and things that I didn't expect and great blessings from really neat people and some horrible blessings from people that I really wish didn't bless me at all. So... The Genesis story is very parallel to our own in that sense. The question that I'd like to ask us as we've studied all this and now as we've taken a look at Joseph's final statement that this all is good, God intended it for good for the saving of many lives is simply this. How do you end your story? Because as remember, we start with goodness. Joseph has chosen and described that we're going to end with goodness, even though there's all sorts of stuff that isn't necessarily good. In other words, you and I, every single one of us, have a choice of how we're going to end the story. i give you an example of this. Ken Blanchard, in his best-selling book, The One-Minute Manager, talks about a way of managing people that involves an inclusio, involves a sandwiching, a bracketing, If you read carefully his book, it's a very quick one. He talks about... (laughs) Is it about one minute? It's about one minute. Yeah. yeah. Tell people beforehand that you're going to let them know how they're doing, how they are doing in no uncertain terms. So you begin the story of reprimand, or you begin the story of correction, or you begin the story of management being honest and being true and tell them exactly what it is that you're going to do. And he gives two halves of this reprimand. The first half is to reprimand people immediately. He has this very intricate way of um, making sure that you follow some very clear rules. Tell people what they did wrong. Be specific. Tell people how you feel. And then stop for a few seconds of uncomfortable silence to let them uh, feel how you feel, right? (laughs) So this is not a great (laughs) feeling necessarily for a supervisor. But the the reason why I point this out is because that's not how he ends the story. There's a second half of the reprimand. Shake hands or touch them in a way that leads them, that lets them know that you are honestly on their side. Remind them how much you value them. Reaffirm that you think well of them, but not of their performance in the situation. (laughs) Now, what I love about that so much is because so much of the stories that we tell in a variety of situations and circumstances, start with something. But they don't always end well. And the reason why I think this Genesis 50-20 verse is so brilliant is because we clearly see that Genesis starts well, but doesn't always end up really great. 
But Joseph and the writer of Genesis ensures that the last thing you hear, the final thing that you want to make sure that you punctuate the story with is something good, which, as we've learned and talked about with Inclusio, frames the entire experience. This, in my mind, is brilliant. How do you discipline your children? How do you talk to your kids? And this is something that we could possibly talk about a lot more. And I hear parents, and I've probably done this myself, reprimand behavior and the story stops there. But I've heard parents brilliantly continue the story, reprimand the behavior, say this is what is inappropriate, but then continue the story and end with the reason is because you're my child and I love you and I believe in you and I cherish the calling that God has on your life, etc., etc. In other words, how do you end the story of discipline? Do you end it only on reprimand, behavioral modification, condemnation, or do you end it in a different way? How do you end the other dramatic events in our lives? How do you end the story of conflict within a relationship? How do you end the story of failure, of things that didn't go right, attempts that you made that just failed dismally? How do you end the story of injustice where people have taken advantage of somebody else and people are suffering as a result? How do you end the story of disease and tragedy and trauma? What's the closing line of that story? How do you end that story? Well, our hope and our prayer is as we've gone through this Genesis story and we see this at the end, you intended to harm me. Clearly, that's the drama. That's the stuff that has come through. And we see it reflected once again in the blessings. But God intended it for good. In other words, in the midst of everything in my life, in the midst of all the ups and downs and all the drama, how the story started was goodness. And now it's my responsibility and my prerogative and almost my joy to say, a whole bunch of crap really did happen. But I'm going to choose to end the story on a different note. I'm going to choose to end the story by saying, it's all good. All of it. Again, we're not saying that all the events were exactly wonderful. What we're saying is we are choosing to see in light of long-term history, we've gone on a long journey with Genesis, to look back upon those past events, to reflect upon the things that have happened, to see your place, where you are now, what those events have done in and through you, and to say, you know what? There are some things out there that have really intended to harm me. There are some things and people out there that have really intended to do me damage. There are some things and people and systems out there that have really intended to keep me down. But God intended it for good. And as I choose to see that God has intended it for good, as I close that story, I invoke an entirely different kind of story, all by telling a different ending. And Jonathan Sachs puts it this way. Time becomes an arena of change in which the future redeems the past. And an entirely new concept is born, the idea we call hope. Oh, man, it's beautiful. So how do you choose to end your story? With despair, dysfunction, 
trauma, tragedy, injustice? Or are we going to put one more chapter on that story and say, it may have been intended for harm, but because of faith, because of truth, because of who God is, because of redemption, because of power, I've had the, I have this new idea called hope because God intended all of this, every single part of it, for good. From the very beginning of the creation story to the calling of Abraham, and now through the story of Joseph in a foreign land in Egypt, it's all good. All of it. Do you hear it? When God created the world, he intended it for good. All this stuff happens. But at the end, Joseph chooses to stand with God and say, it's intended for good. And it goes back to one of the messages we gave at the very beginning. Will we be Genesis 1 and 2 people who say it's good? Or will we be only Genesis 3 people who say there's been a curse? Let's live into the truth of God saying he intended it all for good. And we can mess it up and we can hurt it and there's consequences when we do. Reuben, you're out. There's a consequence. But God is still in the process of intending everything, his creation, for good. And we can be partners with him in that goodness. And if we hold on to that, if we hold on to that same intentionality that God has been writing through this story, that could radically change everything about how we live, how we see, how we perceive, how we relate. That all the things, that the conflicts in relationships, the trouble and challenge that you have of raising children, the, the, the frustration that you have at work, all of it is for good? Yeah, all of it. All of it. The trauma, the tragedy, disease, the fight, the hospitals. And again, we want to say very, very clearly that we're not trying to sugarcoat anything. There's very real pain. There's very real struggle. There's extreme, excruciating journeys that we all face. The question is not, are those journeys painful and difficult? The question is, how do you end the story? What sandwich do you put on the end? How do you bracket it? What's the envelope that you put that entire story in? And we all have a choice and putting it in something that declares that the intention from God for all of this is good. Which is beautiful, ordered, purposeful, redemptive, hopeful. That's what we want. I think Lily and the team, we're going to invite you guys to come up. And they're actually going to sing a song entitled Beautiful which is very appropriate for this as we close, because several times in the scriptures, the word tov, the word for good in Hebrew, is sometimes translated beautiful. And so as we sing this, is as you think about your circumstance and situation, and as you think about the journey and the long course that we've all been on, as an act of faith and as a prayer, perhaps we can all say, okay, God, this thing that's in my life right now is intending to keep me down or is really challenging me or is really paining my life, my family. But you're going to intend this for good. Some good, some purpose, some redemptive hope in all of this. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for this amazing book, Genesis. Thank you for this story, and thank you for the journey that we've been on. We pray, God, that all of what we have discussed and all the questions that we've asked and all the stories with which we have wrestled, all the challenges and ideas and concepts that have come our way, God, we pray that all of this has inspired us, changed us, moved us, and ultimately, God, caused us to see that intention of goodness can radically transform our lives and this world. So help us to see that, live that, be that. And by the power of your spirit, God, uh, move us, nudge us forward um, in that. Give us more faith to see that all of this is intended for good. And ultimately, it's because you are good. You are beautiful. You are ordered. You have that intention in this world and for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.